0: All right, at this time, brothers and sisters, I want to invite you to turn with me in your copy of God's Word back to Micah as we resume our study. Remember last week when we looked at chapter 3, we said that chapter 3 began the second of the three oracles of that book. And that the second oracle go, went from chapter 3 through the end of chapter 5. The beginning section, chapter 3, is where God pronounced, he, he, he made a verdict and he pronounced a judgment. And now starting here, God's going to pivot to talk about the restoration and the hope. So, let's give ear to what the Lord s- says to us through these words, in these words, Micah chapter 4, verses 1 through 5. The prophet writes, It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains, and it shall be lifted up above the hills, and peoples shall flow to it, And many nations shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways, and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between many peoples, and shall decide disputes for strong nations far away. And they shall beat their swords into plowshares. And their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation. Neither shall they learn war anymore. But they shall sit every man under his vine and under his fig tree. And no one shall make them afraid. For the mouth of the Lord of hosts has spoken. For all the peoples walk each in the name of its God, but we will walk in the name of the Lord our God forever and ever. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of the living God. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord endures forever. Let us pray. Almighty God, we thank you so much for this word and for the encouragement and the hope. Grant, O God, that we would marvel and that we would see its place even for us. In Christ's name we ask this. Amen. Well, when I read chapter 4, verses 1 through 5, especially as I read chapters or verses 1 through 3, that probably rang a bell for you. That sounds familiar. Uh, it, it is familiar. In fact, if you look at these verses, Ma- Micah chapter 4, verses 1, 2, and 3, and then cross reference them with Isaiah 2, verses 2, 3, and 4 you will find that they are almost word for word verbatim. That doesn't surprise me in the least. It's not a threat to inerrancy in the least. Why? Because Micah and Isaiah were contemporaries. They ministered in the same time and in the same place. And this is a precious, precious promise of hope for the people of God. You have to bear in mind the historical situation, okay? Remember, Micah and Isaiah both ministered at a time where in the real world, the corruption around them was almost absolute. And you get the impression from reading that just about Everyone assigned a role of shepherding, whether it was in the civil realm or the, or the, or the ministerial realm, that they were all corrupt. The judges were corrupt. Justice was bought and sold for a price. Truly, bribery was the norm. And the little guy consistently got torn apart by the system. The word of God was 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 prostituted and perverted and polluted. So there was no place to turn for the little guy. The little guy was stuck between a rock and a hard place. And of those little guys who were stuck between a rock and a hard place, even most of them had given up on the Lord. They worshipped Asherah. They worshiped Baal. Indeed, some of them worshiped Molech. And they had the audacity to offer up their sons and their daughters as burnt offerings. So if you were a faithful Israelite, a faithful Jew, a faithful member of the covenant of community of the covenant people of God, you were surely in the minority and you felt the pressure from all around. But then looking beyond that, you had the great powers who were constantly warring. We think, because we, we love the Bible, we think of Jerusalem and, and Israel, we, we kind of have it as the, the center of the, of the ancient world when really it was always just a road bump on the way between Egypt and the powers of, the, of Mesopotamia. And everybody who fought each other, the big powers from Egypt all the way up to Assyria, all the way up to Greece, everywhere, they had to go by Israel. So Israel was always caught in the crosshairs. And now Assyria had come and utterly destroyed the northern kingdom. Utterly destroyed it. And done such horrific barbarities to the people that... Our imaginations pale to try to picture it. We don't want to picture it. So they had real troubles inside and horrific terrors outside. And if you look at the words that he had just said in chapter 3, verse 12, the the verse immediately preceding our passage was one that was very, very grim. Zion shall be plowed as a field. Have you ever seen a field that's been plowed? Yeah. It's, a, it's full of, you know, things that are standing upright, lots of, lots of flourishing going. No, a field that's been plowed is pretty flat. And there's no standing plants left after they're done plowing it. The idea is everything you see here is going to be utterly destroyed. That's not real hopeful, is it? But then, in stark contrast to the last uttered word from chapter 3, the prophet begins chapter 4 with a reassurance, not to the masses of the Lord's people who were part of the problem. His word of encouragement is not to the the crooked priests who had sold themselves to the crooked ruler. No, they, they had nothing but judgment in their future. He was giving a message of hope to the faithful remnant of God's people who had to endure in the face of all of this. That nonetheless, despite the fact that this place is gonna be overthrown, nonetheless, it shall come to pass that in the latter days, a complete reversal will occur. The basic point Chapter 4, verses 1 through 5 is this. Absolutely nothing is going to keep God's kingdom from coming. Not sin, not rebellion, not corruption, not even foreign powers intent on destroying every trace of the true religion. Nothing on heaven or earth or under the earth is going to stop God's kingdom from coming. That's the basic point. And then in each of the five verses that make up this section, there is an essential point, a statement in each verse to underscore this point. And before I go in, just recall that in chapter 3, the Lord's two great indictments was that the word had been polluted and that the rulers who were supposed to maintain order and peace and to promote flourishing, that they were utterly failing. Now, in the face of a present situation, in which the outside world viewed Israel as nothing more than a pit stop on the way to greater and bigger, better things, and which the people inside were, were, were distorting the word of God and totally taking advantage of their positions to abuse the people instead of lead them, we get to see in verse one the marvel that is God's kingdom. Verse one's main point is that God loves reversals. This theme is throughout Scripture. But the abode of the Lord will go from being utterly obscure to being the principle among the earth. That's verse 1. We're going we're to dive in further. I just want to give each 5. The second verse stresses the passion that will exist for the word of the Lord. This contrasts with the perversion of the word that's been found in their present day. Verse three stresses the profound justice that will exist, which again is in stark contrast to the injustice of their situation Verse four is a beautiful statement of how the people then will flourish in a context in which God's word and God's rule are occurring as it should. And then verse five brings it all home. Verses one, two, three, and four look to the future. Verse five returns to the present tense. And there's a great message there that there's many promises given to us that announce, that make clear, that establish the fact that God wins, his kingdom comes, evil is overthrown, every wrong is made right. And that should therefore have an impact on how we live in the present, which doesn't look necessarily anything like the great picture that has been held before us. Now as we look at these verses and marvel at the reversal that God promises to work, we are immediately looking at the first verses, it sh- the first words of verse 1. It shall come to pass in the, the ESV says, latter days. I don't know why the translation committee of the ESV felt the need to be different. The word means the end days, the last days. And so the NASB, the NIV, the King James, I mean, everybody says the, in the last days. But I I guess saying the last days was, I don't know, too cliche. So they said latter. But understand that when here, he doesn't just mean days in the future, like latter could imply. No, it's the word last. In the last days. Now that has some people inquire, well, what last days are you talking about? Is is The picture painted here in these verses of a millennial kingdom is Jesus going to come and not quite save everybody and still have wicked sinners running around, but yet he's going to just subjugate them militarily, and and they're still going to be wicked and unbelieving, but yet they're going to exist under his rule, and and it will be peace on earth, even though in their hearts they're raging against... uh, what is that what it means, or is it talking about the new heavens and the new earth? I mean, the Old Testament gives us some amazing pictures of what takes place eventually where where lions lay down with lambs, and I mean something has fundamentally happened when when lions don't need to survive off of eating lambs and when and, and when a child can put its hand into the, the, the pit of a viper and not get bit, something remarkable has happened in the created order. So is that the new earth? Well, I would posit, along with the historic Christian Church, that you understand latter days in view of what the totality of the scriptures has to say about the subject. Do not, do not do theology by looking at the Old Testament, which the New Testament explicitly says is type and shadow, And looking at key words and underlining key words and absolutizing key words and then move to the New Testament and pretend the New Testament isn't explaining the Old Testament. That's not how you read a book. You read a book that the later revelation explains and sheds light upon earlier revelation It's not just true in the Bible. It's how you read any book. A Tom Clancy novel. The mystery is revealed at the end. And then you go, aha, that's what it meant back on page 25. Okay? That is how you read a book. Later Revelation interprets and explains earlier Revelation. So we think in terms of last days. Well, what what is the last days? Regardless of what Hal Lindsey or Tim LaHaye have told you, the New Testament says a lot more about the last days than the Old Testament does. Did you know that according to the New Testament, the entire entire course of history from the first advent of Christ is called the last days? Did you know that? It says it explicitly. Long, this is Hebrews 1, 2. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. In Hebrews 9, going forward a little bit, he He changes the word, but it's the same concept. In fact, it it sounds even, even more imminent when he says that Jesus has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin in himself. Indeed, Peter agrees with the author of Hebrews. In 1 Peter 1.20, he says that Jesus was foreknown from before the foundation of the world, but he was made manifest in the last days for the sake of you who through him are believers in God. Building on that then, since Jesus was manifest at what was, in terms of the Bible's understanding, the beginning of the last days, we have Pentecost occur in, in Acts chapter two and some of you recall the passage, what happens that the Holy Spirit descends and it's like, it's like tongues of fire, flames lapping at, and, and there's a great wind and it's an awesome, non-repeatable event. It was a, a significant event in salvation history that happened and we still live in the light of it having happened. And the people... Are, are talking. They're all talking over each other. And, and incidentally, all of the hearers there gathered from all the corners of the world hear the apostles' teaching in their own languages. There's more than 12 languages present, but they're all hearing it, and they're like, man, are these dudes drunk or what? And Peter, of course, corrects them. No, they're not drunk. It's, you know, it's only nine in the morning. No, this... This is what was said by the apostle or by the prophet Joel. And so he quotes Joel. And what does he say? In the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Okay. So Peter, the author of Hebrews, and then Paul. In 1 Corinthians 10, he's reflecting back on the Old Testament events and the significance of why they were written down. Why were all these episodes of apostasy and judgment written down? Was it written just to be a historical record of what happened back then? And the answer is no. There is great relevancy to the fact that the people of old received A blessing responded poorly and were then destroyed for it. And after having Paul tell us not to follow in their footsteps, he says this in verse 11 of 1 Corinthians 10. These things happened to them as an example but were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. Therefore, let anyone Who thinks he stands, take heed lest he fall. So in the Bible's eyes, the last days refers to the entirety of human history from the first coming of Christ until his second. And at his second coming, we have the judgment and then we have the inauguration of a new heaven and a new earth. We live, brothers, in the last days. And so, it is an awesome truth to consider that the Lord prophesied through his messenger what would happen starting with the coming of Christ even to now. And so when we learn about the latter days, understand that what we see is a now and not yet. There is a truth to the fact that we have not seen the fullest expression of these verses yet. It's the same with your salvation. You have been promised. The Holy Spirit has been given as a a seal, as a guarantee, as a comforter. And you begin to see sanctification worked out in your life, but you have not yet yet been glorified. That is still to come. But nonetheless, in the last days, that is when the Messiah comes, this is what will transpire. And then he begins by saying, the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains. Jerusalem sat on a little mountaintop It sits on a little mountain about 2,400 feet above sea level. The Mount of Olives is about 300 feet higher. It's at 2,700 feet. So Jerusalem sits about as far from the coast as we are. And while we are at a, right here, we're at about 120 feet above sea level, they, in the same distance from the coast, are at 2,400 feet above sea level. So it's a pretty rugged area. If you've been to Israel, if you've even seen, the reason travel takes so long is it's just continual up and down, very steep crevasses, and it, there's no straight lining it anywhere, just about. But 2,400 feet is not that important impressive but people love mountains in the ancient world they loved whenever possible to to build their cities on top of a mountain why easier to defend but mountains were also important culturally because you can see a mountain from a distance it makes a great a great marker a great navigational tool a great beacon if you will of hey we can get to this city because we can see it in the distance but religiously mountains were a big deal in the ancient world even when they had no mountains they made their temples to look like mountains that's what a ziggurat is Think about the Old Testament and how often you hear that they're worshiping on a high place. They would go up because from from their perspective, the higher you go, the closer you are to the heavens, the closer you are to the deity. And so God was more likely to accept you, to hear you, to respond to you. And so in the cultural perspective of that world, if you're going to build a temple somewhere, you build it as high as you can. But of course, we know that despite the Bible's impression, the, the Bible when Solomon builds his temple, it, it, it goes to show that it was, it was beautiful. But nonetheless, God had it designed simply. Compared to some of the temples of the ancient world, even the Temple of Solomon was a small, insignificant structure. It's, it's incredible to, to, to read some of these temples that exist in other places. And the nation itself was never more than a little group of feisty people they had to fight through to get down to, to Egypt to fight the people they wanted to fight. Or, you know, Pharaoh wanted to go up and fight the... the the Assyrians, he had to to fight the Israelites to get through. They were just a speed bump people, insignificant, except for a little splash of international prestige during Solomon's reign. Insignificant culturally. And the people of Micah's day, yes, they were proud of their temple, but they were self-aware of the fact that there's mightier nations around them about to destroy them. And here the prophet promises that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains. I love, I wanted to post the picture up here on the screen. Uh, I loved the drive in Alaska going up to Denali. Once, Once you get to Eagle River, the town of Eagle River, the mountain passes, they're coming out of Anchorage. You're at, it. From that point on, Denali dominates the landscape. And if you've been to Alaska and you've taken Highway 1 up from Anchorage up to Denali, you know, you get to the point where you, 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 you've driven north out, out of Wasilla, uh, and know you can't see Russia from there. Um, but you... you you, you get outside of Wasilla, you go up about 20 more miles, and you pass through this little town called Willow, and that's where that's where the the lake is that the Iditarod they they start the Iditarod right there. It's it's incredible, but you're driving right down the road, and and the road of course makes a bend way up ahead. But as you're driving down the main section of town, y- you can see Denali, and And in front of it, looking like foothills, a Rocky Mountain, like the front range of the Rocky Mountains, looking like foothills. And Denali is just this monstrous thing. And you're still about a three-hour drive. It's awesome. You can't ignore it. You can't not see it. It is the most prominent landscape feature around. And the Lord is promising his people that in the last days, the mountain of the house of the Lord will be the most prominent feature and when people wish to seek the Lord, it will be the place they find. Jerusalem people then and even people now don't really understand the significance of what Jerusalem was and is. They think its significance was in the fact that it was a geopolitical place, a city with with uh, with all with doctors and lawyers and dentists and you know it's just a city where people gather but that's not its significance in the bible and that's not its significance for us. It's The significance of Jerusalem is that is the place where God caused his name to dwell. The significance of Jerusalem is singular. If you wished to worship the Lord rightly under the old covenant, you had to go to Jerusalem. Jerusalem was where the temple was. Jerusalem is where the sacrifices were to be offered where the Lord was to be worshipped, period. And so the significance of Jerusalem is found in that fact that the Lord is there. The temple where the Lord resides is there. And so, what is he saying? Is he saying that we're going to have a geographical city in the last days that's established as the place where you have to go to worship the Lord. Is that what he's saying? That there are some of our brothers and sisters who think that in the last, last days, because, you know, but in the last, last days, we're actually gonna have a new temple built in that city. And, and that really is gonna be the place. Never mind that Jesus says otherwise. He literally says otherwise. In John chapter 4, in chapter 4 verse 21, he's, he's on a mission. And I, I love that it says he had to go through Samaria because no, he did not geographically have to go through Samaria. So the, the he had to go was not a, a directional statement of fact. It was a missional statement. I love that part. But anyway, he's talking to the Samaritan woman at the well. John chapter 4, you know the passage. And she's throwing up all sorts of dodges every time he, he's, he's getting. But he's the great soul hunter. And he will not lose this woman And when, she says, I figure you're a prophet. You sound like a prophet. You're, you're talking like a prophet. My, my people worship here on Mount Gerizim. And Mount Gerizim has a, has a prestigious lineage in the Bible. It's where God's blessings in Deuteronomy were pronounced upon the people. And after the conquest, uh, Joshua goes back there. So it, it, it had some, a pedigree. So the Samaritans worshiped God here on this mountain but you and your people the jews y'all say that god has to be worshipped in jerusalem and what does jesus tell her you're right <laughs> you better get yourself down to jerusalem lady no he addresses her as woman that that always cracks me up how how jesus he has no qual- he calls his mom woman i mean you know, think that he doesn't have 21st century manners. Jesus, he calls, he calls women, women. Woman, believe me, the time is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. But the hour is coming and has now come. When the true worshipers will worship in spirit and in truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. That's because Jerusalem's purpose purpose was singular. And the ending of the age in which Jerusalem as a physical place and the temple as a physical place was, was essential to worship was fast drawing to a conclusion, which is why Jesus, he, he walks around and he, he, he ticks a lot of people off because the temple was their pride and joy. And he just walks around. He's like, you know, every single one of these, not a single stone is going to be left standing on top of each other. They didn't like that. In fact, that's one of the charges they bring at him. He said he would tear down the temple. And then what does he say? They, they, They like to forget the, he said, tear down this temple and I will raise it back up in three days. Jesus sees himself as the true temple. Why? Because what is the temple? It's the place where God is. It's the place where sacrifices are made. Jesus is where God is because what? He is God. He's the place where sacrifices are made because he's our great high priest having offered himself once for all time. He sees himself as the new temple. And we, his people, according to scripture, are being built into a living temple. And this is amazing news to us, which is why the author of Hebrews tells us that we have now come to Mount Zion, to the heavenly city in festal array. Even though we haven't come to a city on the earth, we have come to that which is the true Israel the true jerusalem the true temple because we come in the name of christ that's what hebrews 12:22 is telling us and the beautiful thing is that in these last days the true people of god will gather in the name of the son and offer true worship and they will and he will gather all nations to himself indeed that's what he says In John chapter 12, verse 31 and 32, he says this, Now is the judgment of this world. Now is the ruler of this world cast out. And when I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people to myself. This is what you see described here in Micah chapter 4. Notice the supernatural working of God when it says, that the uh, the peoples shall flow to it. What flows? A river. And which direction do rivers flow? Downhill. But what has he just said? Jerusalem would be, the highest mountain. So he's depicting a river flowing uphill. A remarkably supernatural feet, which is fleshed out in the fact that as Paul says, we, we, we in this world were alienated from the covenants without God and without hope. But now we have been brought near. And so there's a deep passion for the word amongst the true Israel of God, the people of God called by his name, and we flock from the corners of the world to where the Lord is. This is why we gather in assemblies. This is why the church in every age is a outpost of the kingdom of God where the Lord's word is made manifest, where the Lord's rule is, is evidenced, and he works peace. History is filled with the peace-bringing effect of the kingdom. But yet again, we have the now and the not yet. For indeed, the day comes when, when peace will be established on the earth in totality in the new earth, but for now, the foretaste of it is this, as evidenced in Ephesians chapter 2, where there's this wall of hostility between the two men, and now in Christ, the, the wall has been torn down, and the two have been made into one man, and we, we evidence it here in the body when we come from various backgrounds, and we have peace and instead of the prejudices and, 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 and grievances that we bring from our very, we're brother and we're sister and we look after for one another, bearing one another's burden. I love multinational services. My favorite one uh, was the Easter service in 2007 in Bagram Airfield where I, I, I preached the Easter service and we had... Protestants, from all of, not not just the American forces, but from all over our our allies, and, and it was awesome, singing hymns together from all sorts of nations, reading God's word together, proclaiming God's word together. It's a glorious picture of what is to come, and so in the midst then of a dismal present the prophet wants his people to know, those of you who are just barely holding on in the midst of all this difficulty, have hope. Walk in present faithfulness, knowing the bright, luminous future that awaits. Our God is King and Lord of the whole earth He is all wise, he is all powerful, he is all present. No one and nothing can stop it from coming. So walk in his name now and forever and you will see the day of your salvation. Let us pray. Almighty God, we thank you for this great word of hope from Micah. Thank you for giving us the privilege of living in the age in which your son is calling all people to himself. And thank you that you have gathered us together in this place. Lord, may we embody the peace and presence of Christ. May we love and cherish your word. And may we as a city on a hill bear witness of the superiority of your kingdom to that of the surrounding. And may we invite others to join. For Christ's sake we pray it. Amen.